Chapter 9, Letters 9 and 10 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Carroll. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long. 1867 to 1923. Chapter 9. Letter 9 from Dr. Loy. 23rd February, 1913. From your letter of 16th February, I want first to single out the end, where you so admirably assign to its proper place the power of suggestion in psychoanalysis. Quote, the patient is no empty sack into which you can cram what you will. He brings his own predetermined content with him, with which one has always to reckon afresh. Unquote. With this I fully agree. My own experience confirms it. And you add, quote, This content remains untouched by involuntary analytical suggestion, but its form is altered, Proteus fashion, beyond measure. Unquote. So it becomes a matter of a sort of mimicry by which the patient seeks to escape the analyst, who is driving him into a corner and therefore, for the moment, seems to him an enemy. Until at last, through the joint work of patient and analyst, the former spontaneously yielding up his psychic content, the latter only interpreting and explaining. The analysis succeeds in bringing so much light into the darkness of the patient's psyche that he can see the true relationships and without any preconceived plan of the analysts, can draw himself the right conclusions and apply them to his future life. This new life will betake itself along the line of least resistance, or should we not rather say the least resistances, as a compromise with all necessities in a just balancing of pleasure and unpleasure? Is it not we who must arbitrarily seek to determine how matters stand for the patient, and what will benefit him, his own nature decides. In other words, we must assume the role of the akashur, who can bring out into the light of day a child already alive, but who must avoid a series of mistakes if the child is to remain able to live and the mother is not to be injured. All this is very clear to me, since it is only the application to the psychoanalytic method of a general principle which should have universal validity, never do violence to nature. Hence, I also see that the psychoanalyst must follow his patient's apparently wrong roads if the patient is ever to arrive at his own convictions and be freed once and for all from infantile reliance on authority. We ourselves, as individuals, have learnt or can only learn by making mistakes how to avoid them for the future. And mankind as a whole has created the conditions of its present and future stages of development quite as much by frequent travel along wrong paths as along the right road. Have not many neurotics, I do not know if you will agree, but I think so, become ill partly for the very reason that their infantile faith in authority has fallen to pieces? Now they stand before the wreckage of their faith, weeping over it in dire distress because they cannot find a substitute 
which shall show them clearly whither their life's course should now turn. So they remain stuck fast betwixt infancy, which they must unwillingly renounce, and the serious duties of the present and future, the moral conflict. I see, particularly in such cases, you are right in saying it is a mistake to seek to replace the lost faith in authority by another similar faith, certain to be useful only so long as the belief lasts. This applies to the deliberate use of suggestion in psychoanalysis and the building upon the transference to the doctor as the object of the analytic therapy. I am no longer in doubt about your maxim, quote, every interference on the analyst's part is a gross mistake in technique. So-called chance is the law and order of psychoanalysis, unquote. Further, I am entirely in agreement with you when you say that altruism necessarily must be innate in man considered as a herd animal. The contrary would be the thing to be wondered at. I should be much disposed to agree that not the egoistic, but the altruistic instincts are primary. Love and trust of the child for the mother who feeds it, nurses, cherishes, and pets it. Love for the man for his wife, regarded as going out towards another's personality. Love for offspring, care for it, love for kinfolk, etc. The egoistic instincts owe their origin to the desire for exclusive possession of all that surrounds love. The desire to possess the mother exclusively in opposition to the father and the brothers and the sisters, the desire to have a woman for himself alone, the desire to possess exclusively ornaments, clothing, etc. But perhaps you will say I am paradoxical and that the instincts, egoistic or altruistic, arise together in the heart of man and that every instinct is ambivalent in nature. But I have to ask if the feelings and the instincts are really ambivalent. Are they exactly bipolar? Are the qualities of all emotions altogether comparable? Is love really the opposite of hate? However that may be, in any case it is well that man bears the social law within himself as an inborn imperative. Otherwise our civilized humanity would fare badly having to subject themselves to laws imposed on them from outside only. They would be impervious to the inheritance of the earlier religious faiths and would soon fall into complete anarchy. Man would then have to ask himself whether it would not be better to maintain by force an extreme belief in religious authority such as prevailed in the Middle Ages. For the benefits of civilization, which strove to grant every individual as much outward freedom as was consistent with the freedom of others, would be well worth the sacrifice of free research. But the age of this use of force against nature is past. Civilized man has left this wrong track behind, not arbitrarily, but obeying an inner necessity. And we may look joyfully towards the future. Mankind, advancing in knowledge, will find its way across the ruins of faith and authority to the moral autonomy of the individual. Letter 10 from Dr. Jung, March 1913 at various places in your letters, 
It has struck me that the problem of transference seems to you particularly critical. Your feeling is entirely justified. The transference is indeed at present the central problem of analysis. You know that Freud regards the transference as the projection of infantile fantasies upon the doctor. To this extent, the transference is an infantile erotic relationship. All the same, viewed from the outside, superficially the thing by no means always looks like an infantile erotic situation. As long as it is a question of the so-called positive transference, the infantile erotic character can usually be recognized without difficulty. But if it is a negative transference, you can see nothing but violent resistances which sometimes veil themselves in seemingly critical or skeptical dress. In a certain sense, the determining factor in such circumstances is the patient's relation to authority, that is, in the last resort, to the father. In both forms of transference, the doctor is treated as if he were the father, according to the situation, either tenderly or with hostility. In this view, the transference has the force of a resistance as soon as it becomes a question of resolving the infantile attitude. But this form of transference must be destroyed, inasmuch as the object of analysis is the patient's moral autonomy. A lofty aim, you will say. Indeed, lofty and far off, but still not altogether so remote, since it actually corresponds to one of the predominating tendencies of our stage of civilization, namely that urge toward individualization by which our whole epoch deserves to be characterized. Compare this to Mule Liar di Familia. If a man does not believe in this orientation and still bows before the scientific causal viewpoint, he will, of course, be disposed merely to resolve this hostility and to let the patient remain in a positive relationship towards the father, thus expressing the ideal of an earlier epoch of civilization. It is commonly recognized that the Catholic Church represents one of the most powerful organizations based upon this earlier tendency. I cannot venture to doubt that there are very many individuals who feel happier under compulsion from others than when forced to discipline themselves. See also Shaw, Man and Superman. Nonetheless, we do our neurotic patients a grievous wrong if we try to force them all into the category of the unfree. Among neurotics, there are not a few who do not require any reminders of their social duties and obligations. Rather, are they born or destined to become the bearers of new social ideals? They are neurotic so long as they bow down to authority and refuse the freedom to which they are destined. Whilst we look at life only retrospectively, as is the case in the Viennese psychoanalytic writings, we shall never do justice to this type of case and never bring the longed-for deliverance. For in that fashion, we can only educate them to become obedient children and thereby strengthen the very forces that have made them ill their conservative retardation, and their submissiveness to authority. Up to a certain point, this is the right way to take with the infantile resistance which cannot yet reconcile itself with authority. 
But the power which edged them out from their retrograde dependence on the Father is not at all a childish desire for insubordination, but the powerful urge towards the development of an individual personality. And this struggle is their imperative life's task. Adler's psychology does much greater justice to this situation than Freud's. In the one case, that of infantile intractability, the positive transference signifies a highly important achievement. Heralding cure, in the other, infantile submissiveness, it portends a dangerous backsliding, a convenient evasion of life's duty. The negative transference represents in the first case an increased resistance, thus a backsliding and an evasion of duty. But in the second, it is an advance of healing significance. For the two types, see also Adler's Trotz und Gerhusum. The transference then is, as you see, to be judged quite differently in different cases. The psychological process of transference, be it negative or positive, consists in the libido entrenching itself, as it were, round the personality of the doctor, the doctor accordingly representing certain emotional values. As you know by libido, I understand very much what antiquity meant by the cosmogenic principle of eros, in modern terminology, simply psychic energy. The patient is bound to the doctor, be it in affection, be it in opposition, and cannot fail to follow and imitate the doctor's psychic adaptations. To this he finds himself urgently compelled. And with the best will in the world, and all technical skill, the doctor cannot prevent him, for intuition works surely and instinctively, in despite of the conscious judgment, be it never so strong. Were the doctor himself neurotic and inadequate in response to the demands of the external life, or inharmonious within, the patient would copy the defect and build it up into the fabric of his own presentations. You may imagine the result. Accordingly, I cannot regard the transference as merely the transference of infantile erotic fantasies. No doubt that is what it is from one standpoint. But I see also in it, as I said in an earlier letter, the process of growth of feeling and adaptation. From this standpoint, the infantile erotic fantasies, in spite of their indisputable reality, appear rather as material for comparison or as analogous pictures of something not understood as yet, than as independent desires. This seems to be the real reason of their being unconscious. The patient, not knowing the right attitude, tries to grasp at a right relationship to the doctor by way of comparison and analogy with his infantile experiences. It is not surprising that he gropes back for just the most intimate relations of his childhood to discover the appropriate formula for his attitude to the doctor, for his relationship also is very intimate and to some extent different from the sexual relationship, just as is that of the child towards its parents. This relationship, child to parent, which Christianity has everywhere set up as a symbolic formula for human relationships, provides a way of restoring to the patient that directness of ordinary human emotion of which he had been deprived through the inroad of sexual and social values, from the standpoint of power, etc. 
The purely sexual, more or less primitive and barbaric valuation operates in far-reaching ways against a direct, simple human relationship. And thereupon, a blocking of the libido occurs, which easily gives rise to neurotic formations. By means of analysis of the infantile portion of the transference fantasies, the patient is brought back to the remembrance of his childhood's relationship, and this, stripped of its infantile qualities, gives him a beautiful, clear picture of direct human intercourse as opposed to purely sexual valuation. I cannot regard it as other than a misconception to judge the childish relationship retrospectively and therefore as exclusively a sexual one, even though a certain sexual content can in no wise be denied to it. Recapitulating, let me say this much of the positive transference. The patient's libido fastens upon the person of the doctor, taking the shape of expectation, hope, interest, trust, friendship, and love. Then the transference produces the projection upon the doctor of infantile fantasies, often of predominatingly erotic tinge. At this stage, the transference is usually of a decidedly sexual character, in spite of the sexual component remaining relatively unconscious. But this phase of feeling serves the higher aspect of the growth of human feeling as a bridge, whereby the patient becomes conscious of the defectiveness of his own adaptation through his recognition of the doctor's attitude, which is accepted as one suitable to life's demands and normal in its human relationships. By help of the analysis and the recalling of his childish relationships, the road is seen which leads right out of those exclusively sexual or power evaluations of social surroundings which were acquired in puberty and strongly reinforced by social prejudices. This road leads on towards a purely human relation and intimacy, not derived solely from the existence of a sexual or power relation, but depending much more upon a regard for personality. That is the road to freedom which the doctor must show his patient. Here, indeed, I must not omit to say that the obstinate clinging to the sexual valuation would not be maintained so tenaciously if it had not also a very deep significance for that period of life in which propagation is of primary importance. The discovery of the value of human personality belongs to a riper age. For young people, the search for the valuable personality is very often merely a cloak for the evasion of their biological duty. On the other hand, an older person's exaggerated looking back towards the sexual valuation of youth is an undiscerning and often cowardly and convenient retreat from a duty which demands the recognition of personal values and his own enrollment among the ranks of the priesthood of a newer civilization. The young neurotic shrinks back in terror from the extension of his tasks in life, the old from the dwindling and shrinking of the treasures he has attained. This conception of the transference is, you will have noted, most intimately connected with the acceptance of the idea of biological duties. By this term, you must understand those tendencies or motives in human beings giving rise to civilization, as inevitably 
as in the bird they give rise to the exquisitely woven nest, and in the stag to the production of antlers. The purely causal, not to say materialistic, conception of the immediately preceding decades would conceive the organic formation as the reaction of living matter, and this doubtless provides a position heuristically useful, but, as far as any real understanding goes, leads only to a more or less ingenious and apparent reduction and postponement of the problem. Let me refer you to Bergson's excellent criticism of this conception. From the external forces, but half the result, at most, could ensue. The other half lies within the individual disposition of the living material, without which it is obvious the specific reaction formation could never be achieved. This principle must be applied also in psychology. The psyche does not only react, it also gives its individual reply to the influences at work upon it. At least half the resulting configuration and its existing disposition is due to this. Civilization is never, and again never, to be regarded as merely reaction to environment. That shallow explanation we may abandon peacefully to the past century. It is just these very dispositions which we must regard as imperative in the psychological sphere. It is easy to get convincing proof daily of their compulsive power. What I call biological duty is identical with these dispositions. In conclusion, I must deal with a matter which seems to have caused you uneasiness, namely the moral question. Among our patients, we see many so-called immoral tendencies. Therefore, the thought involuntarily forces itself upon the psychotherapist as to how things would go if all these desires were to be gratified. You will have discerned already from my earlier letters that these desires must not be estimated too literally. As a rule, it is rather a matter of unmeasured and exaggerated demands arising out of the person's stored-up libido, which have usurped a prominent position, usually quite against his own wish. In most cases, the canalization of the libido for the fulfillment of life's simple duties suffices to reduce these exaggerated desires to zero. But in some cases, it must be recognized that such immoral tendencies are in no way removed by analysis. On the contrary, they appear more often and more clearly, hence it becomes plain that they belong to the individual's biological duties. And this is particularly true of certain sexual claims, whose aim is an individual valuation of sexuality. This is not a question for pathology. It is a social question of today, which peremptorily demands an ethical solution. For many, it is a biological duty to work for the solution of this question, to discover some sort of practical solution. Nature, it is well known, does not content herself with theories. Today, we have no real sexual morality, only a legal attitude towards sexuality, just as the early Middle Ages had no genuine morality for financial transactions but only prejudices and a legal standpoint. We are not yet sufficiently advanced in the domain of free sexual activity to distinguish between a moral and an immoral relationship. We have a clear expression of this in the customary treatment, or rather 
ill-treatment of unmarried motherhood. For a great deal of sickening hypocrisy, for the high tide of prostitution, and for the prevalence of sexual diseases, we may thank both our barbarous, undifferentiated legal judgments about the sexual situation and our inability to develop a finer moral perception of the immense psychologic differences that may exist in free sexual activity. This reference to the existence of an exceedingly complicated and significant problem may suffice to explain why we by no means seldom meet with individuals among our patients who are quite specially called because of their spiritual and social gifts to take an active part in the work of civilization. For this, they are biologically destined. We must never forget that what today is deemed a moral law will tomorrow be cast into the melting pot and transformed so that in the near or distant future it may serve as the basis of a new ethical structure. This much we ought to have learnt from the history of civilization, that the forms of morality belong to the category of transitory things. The finest psychological tact is required with these critical natures, so that the dangerous corners of infantile irresponsibility, indolence, and uncontrolledness may be turned and pure, untroubled vision of the possibility of a moral autonomous activity made possible. 5% on money lent is fair interest. 20% is despicable usury. That point of view we have to apply equally to the sexual situation. So it comes about that there are many neurotics whose innermost delicacy of feelings prevents their being at one with present-day morality, and they cannot adapt themselves to civilization as long as their moral code has gaps in it, the filling up of which is a crying need of the age. We deceive ourselves greatly if we suppose that many married women are neurotic only because they are unsatisfied sexually, or because they have not found the right man, or because they still have a fixation to their infantile sexuality. The real ground of the neurosis is, in many cases, the inability to recognize the work that is waiting for them, of helping them to build up a new civilization. We are all far too much at the standpoint of the nothing-but psychology. We persist in thinking we can squeeze the new future, which is pressing in at the door, into the framework of the old and the known. And thus, the view is only of the present, never of the future. But it was of most profound psychological significance when Christianity first discovered, in the orientation towards the future, a redeeming principle for mankind. In the past, nothing can be altered, and in the present, little. But the future is ours, incapable of raising life's intensity to its highest pitch. A little space of youth belongs to us. All the rest of life belongs to our children. Thus does your question as to the significance of the loss of faith and authority answer itself. The neurotic is ill, not because he has lost his old faith, but because he has not yet found a new form for his finest aspirations. End of chapter 9. Letters 9 and 10. Recording by Tom Carroll.